I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 91 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Daniel Ayala. Daniel is the founder and managing partner of Socratic, a strategic information security and privacy consultancy focused on helping companies protect data and information and be prepared before incidents happen. Daniel is also currently serving as interim chief information security officer at Michigan State University. Through his 24-year career, he has led security organizations large and small in banking and financial services, pharmaceutical, information, library, and technology companies around the world, taught university-level courses, and both writes and regularly speaks on the topics of security, privacy, data ethics, and compliance. In this episode, we discuss remote working, being a virtual CISO, compliance versus security versus privacy, application development security, creating a culture of security, communication skills, giving back to the community, mentoring others, mental health, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Daniel, thank you for joining me at Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today, sir? I'm doing really well. Thanks, Doug. How are you? I'm doing well. Although we were just talking before we hit record that the, it's a little bit crazy outside. And you know, one of the things that got us talking and you know, what I've been kind of holding back, I've been wanting to get you on for, for some time because you and I have always kind of had our, our sidebar conversations on Colorado, Colorado Equal Security Slack channels and email and other forms. Um, but you know, we've really kind of hit this, this moment now where we said, hey, you know, this this working remote thing is become, becoming something that's going to probably stick around for a while. We, we started kind of noodling on that and put out some resources for folks. But with all that being said, how is uh, the remote working working for you? It's actually working fairly well for me. Um, I've been, I've had some component of remote work and remote teams uh, in my life for let's see, 20 years now. Um, you know, many, many careers ago or many roles ago, um, I started doing incident response with a team that was based in Singapore, Australia, Japan, uh, Sao Paulo, uh, and here in the US and both coasts. So I ended up having large components of my days and times would be time shifted in order to work with those teams in order to stay in touch and aligned with those teams. So, you know, working from a, working from anywhere has been, um, has been okay, but this has been a real different there's a bit of a different feel to this one. Um, and there was a great, uh, it was a great article written by a friend of both of ours, Brad Judy at the Colorado, at the university of Colorado Boulder mm-hmm. um, around, this is not, uh, this is not working from home. This is not just working remotely. This is working during pandemic. Uh, and it's a, uh, it, it requires some different thought about it. Um, and, and I think a lot of those have come, has have come to fruition as we've now been in this for at this point, what, three months. Um, yeah. It's a it's a whole different ball game, you know. Staring at screens for eight hours straight—that was never in the in the model when I was working remotely and other you know with those other teams. It wasn't that everyone was remote. It wasn't that everything was a video conference. Yeah, it's funny. You know, we we have some 
we've had to all adjust to that, right? And it it's funny because yeah, you think that oh, this is this exactly it's just working remote, but it's it's really it's it's adjusting everything because you can't get somewhere. It's not just oh, I've decided to work from it's like I can't go somewhere. Um, you know, we've had issues where on-premise servers have been compromised and say, hey, can we can we get this data? And we're we're finishing up on a project that started in October. Uh, because mm-hmm. once the beginning of the year hit, things slowed down, you know, for holidays and stuff, and you need to collect 20 more systems come February. And they're like, no, we're, nobody's going into that office. And all of a sudden, you know, it's now June. We're getting the final server today. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, you it's it's not just adjusting to, yeah, I'm having a t- teller moment. It's like, what if I just can't get to those systems? And how, how have you seen that effect, you know, folks within, you know, security organizations? I've had some other folks on the podcast that look, it's, you know, when you're running SOC teams remote, the same type of thing. It's not, um, you know, how do you, how do you adjust for that mentality of, you know, knowing what to do, when, and where to go. Well, I think I'll start with the end and say that I think it's been actually quite good because people have realized, have had to realize that we can't do it all. There are things that are outside our control and in infos insecurity, and especially in, in, in response and, you know, other operational items, those are things that we always felt like we, there was never any boundaries. We needed to do what we needed to do to get the in, to get the incident under control, to get the the forensic data that we needed. We you know, and we'd run, we'd jump on planes, we'd go where we needed to go to make it happen. And now we have boundaries, and we have areas where we just physically are not allowed to do so. Um, and I think that's been somewhat enlightening for, especially for security people, um, difficult but enlightening to know that we can't, we, we just can't run ourselves to the end of the earth to make things happen. Um, and that's coming around to some, you know, some understanding of balance that has never been in our field before. Well, talk a little bit about some of the roles that you're doing now. You know, one, one of the things that I yeah. know you're doing is a lot of the virtual CISO work and data privacy work. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're in a programmatic leadership position, you're having to pull people together and um, kind of make sure you have eyeballs focused on you as you talk about organizational risk. Has that become somewhat of a challenge where, you know, you can't necessarily get people in a boardroom and talk about this stuff? Um, somewhat. And I think the exercises where, um, exercises where having people in the, in the physical space, uh, together are most beneficial are things like tabletops, things like whiteboarding, uh, where you're brainstorming and doing some higher order functions. And those are hard. Those are much harder to do remotely. They can be done, but they require a lot more, um, a lot more planning and a lot more diligence of mind from the people involved. You can't take their technology at the door and say, you're going to stare at this whiteboard and we're going to figure this out, or we're going to move uh, post-it notes from, you know, from grouping to grouping until we have a good understanding of how this all is going to fit together, uh, how we're going to build a security strategy. Um, but I think the, the, the technology has helped keep people in touch um, and in other ways, actually facilitated people who have never kept in touch on a regular basis doing so, uh, and has bridged a lot of communication gaps and, and built relate, built stronger relationships among not just within teams, but among teams. Uh, and doing the remote, doing the virtual CISO work, um, it, it has allowed me to help facilitate the building of those relationships, not just within the technology teams, because in most cases, I'm in organizations where there is either a very small security team, um, or it is an IT team that includes some security functions, but helping them, uh, you know, start to ask the questions out into the business areas that they serve and support, um, you know, throughout the rest of the organization, and, and saying, let's leverage technology, and let's 
keep people in touch. Let's use asynchronous chat so that people are asking questions when they think of them and not having to wait you know, until the next scheduled meeting. Um, so it's actually facilitating some of it. So pros and there's cons. Yeah, it's, it's as we say in security, you kind of adapt and overcome, which you stole from the military. Yeah. But I mean, you have to, and it's, you have to become flexible. You know, we kind of talked about where you are now, but where, where did you start on your journey in cybersecurity? <laughs> so I'm one of those rare people who's actually been in the field now for 25 years. Um, actually I'm so in sorry. security. My, my I know. <laughs> there's a reason I'm, I, I am who I am. Um, no, so I started out actually building medical billing, uh, med- sorry, uh, computer networks, medical billing computer networks for doctor's offices. Um, this is right around the time HIPAA started to arrive and um, building for smaller doctor's offices. This is before all the consolidation of health systems. Um, building for those doctor's offices for remote offices. And at the time, T1 lines cost about $1,000 a month yeah. for, a, you know, for one day a use a, month, a week. That wasn't, uh, it wasn't efficient. So I started to play with the internet as a, as a dial-up on the internet, as a transport mechanism, uh, and played with VPNs and firewalls. Um, you know, and we laugh at what, I would laugh at what we would call VPN then, but it was fit for purpose. Um, but I found I really enjoyed both the infrastructure component and the security component that went along with taking really sensitive information and making it available, uh, but doing so in a, in a secure way. Um, and from there, I followed the infrastructure path up. Uh, I went to a healthcare company and did that, uh, that infrastructure security, border security, um, security of the, um, of the e-commerce platforms that were going in in the late 90s. Uh, I took that then to, uh, to a bank uh, and ran incident response uh, vulnerability management, um, strategy and architecture, uh, and then from there back to the healthcare company to build an identity management program, identity and access management, uh, and then on to a uh, tech company that services higher ed and uh, media publishing uh, to look at the general security as their CISO, uh, but also with a heavy focus on content theft. Yeah, and that's, you know, we, we, got to know each other a little bit when you were at the educational company. And, you know, I, I've always amazed that you both were in healthcare and higher ed. I mean, that's just a kind of a glutton for punishment when it comes to, <laughs> to levels of compliance. And, you know, I think yeah. that's one of the things that I, a lot of folks that in security touch on occasionally, they're all in or all out at times. But, you know, when you look at compliance versus security versus privacy, how do you bucket those in ways that one, you can understand, but how do you talk to boards about it and, and even your customers? Yeah, uh, compliance, you know, compliance is the base. It, it, compliance is a guidance level and it's the base uh, of everything. It's not a, you, know, you and I joke about this, compliance does not necessarily equal security and it does not necessarily equal privacy. Um, it's a common understanding of, of, of where to start. Um, then you need to look at the, uh, at, at, the, at the ethos of the business and the ethos of the customers that are being served or the organization as a whole. If you're not in a, in a business, but more, you know, in a higher ed institution, your, your students, your faculty, and your mission, um, and build a program on top of compliance that meets those, uh, that meets those ethical, um, ethical standards, those operational standards. Um, and I think in, on the business side, having discussions about how using security and privacy on top of what is just what is required and using those as um, business differentiators, using those as business enablers, 
Um, this is one of the paths of the CISO, of the, of, the, of the security realm that has been really interesting to watch to go from, you can't do that, to, hey, let's talk about how doing this can actually help make you a better business, actually make your customers want to buy from you more and trust you more. Um, and you know, doing so in a genuine way. Uh, that evolution toward business-enabled security uh, is something that's really resonated with me and has been really fun to help organizations grow to do. I think the privacy world has been doing this for a long time because privacy was never about no. It was real privacy was about transparency and balance and helping enable people to get at the things they needed to, but do so in a way that was in line with their own desires. And, and, you know, I think we've, we've certainly seen, you know, I, you know, there's always been that talk or there's, you know, we see breach after breach after breach. Um, and from the security aspect, you know, I guess one of the ways I, I would try to look at it is like, okay, uh, if you look at a diary, right, <laughs> um, you know, just looking at security and privacy in itself, that's, that the lock on the diaries is security, the information inside is kind of what's private. And you they, they kind of work hand in hand. Um, mm-hmm. But those locks have been being busted open for, for years and it really took – some I guess some more higher profile things around data privacy, whether it be Facebook or other things, until more I would say the state, you know, states really started looking at it as issues. And we started seeing things like CCPA or the California Consumer Privacy Act come to light and many others to potentially follow and you know more of the AGs have been uh, aggressive. You know, do do you see you know, what, where do you see that became such a tipping point? I mean, was, was that kind of a fair analysis that these things finally started to come to light that that was something people can grab onto is privacy versus security? Yeah, it's, um, it, it's been, it's been really interesting to watch that evolve and watch people, um, users, you know, citizens, uh, consumers, realize how the industries have been using data, have been sharing data, have been taking data, um, and how bad actors have been doing the same things um, with different outcomes. But for for a long time, but it wasn't until they realized how much it affected them personally Hmm. that they started to pay attention. And I'm going to give, that's a US answer. (laughs) I think in Europe, um, I think in Europe and in other places where privacy is more built into uh, the constitutions, it's built into the into the society. The right to the right to privacy is a human is considered a human right in Europe after World War II. Those are you know those are fundamentals. So people get that, and I think they insisted on it earlier, which is why you saw the the European GDPR be a lot more um, a lot more uh, complete in its approach. Uh, it, granted, it was also an evolution of a ten-year-old law that came, a ten-year-old set of guidance that came before it. So it's it's version. They're already on version two. Um, but in the U.S., consumers are are, are are quickly coming around to the fact that they are part of a large scheme that they don't get to necessarily decide on or partake in. Um, and along with uh, along with people's increased uh, focus on buying from companies that align with their ethics and align with their values. People are also increasingly making buying decisions based on those that align with their privacy stance, or they give them these kinds of choices. Uh, and I, 
And at first, the response has been, we're going to give you choices, but they may not be real choices. But I think consumers are starting to see past that. And I think over the next five years, you're really going to see people uh, taking control and agency over their own information or insisting on it, because you're going to see companies or organizations providing options to do so. And they will be the ones that, that, that start to rise in terms of people's wanting to use them because of the trust that they've built. Yeah, it, it, it's, it definitely comes down to, uh, it's interesting when I've worked with a number of tech companies that have, and there's been more on the litigation side, it's post-application development. It's when the data's been collected and there's been a, a potential class action lawsuit. And you kind of pause for a second and say, well, what, why did you collect this data? And they said, we don't know. We might use it someday. And there was never really a thought from the engineering side of, why should we be doing this if we could? And because we can and storage is cheap and we're the smartest people in the room, why not? Um, and there seems to be the still disconnect that I've seen, at least with, with, it's getting better, obviously, but you know, with a lot of the you know, app sec and app development teams that don't consider privacy um, as, a, as an issue until there's somebody that's in a privacy role, leadership role or security leadership role that kind of understands that. Are you still seeing that organizationally? There's a disconnect where it becomes compartmentalized to the point where people don't think about data privacy and security in that kind of context of, hey, we're building something that's going to be using consumer data. Should we be doing this? Yeah, there's two two different answers to this. One, uh, part of what's happened over the past decade has been the, the, the distribution or the empowerment of larger swaths of the organization to become part of security or responsible for security. Not bordering on if it's everybody's responsibility, then it's nobody's responsibility, but rather you start to delegate functions related to good security coding to your development. You help them understand what they're doing, how to do what they're doing better. They then in turn become more aware in general of the actions that are being taken. Uh, uh, and and can raise up when they see something that's a little untoward or that concerns them. Uh, this comes from good awareness and education. It goods it comes from giving them control over their own uh, over their own code and being you know, giving them instant feedback on how what they did may have exposed certain information if it had gone forward. Code you know code reviews uh, and instant feedback on uh, on a commit um, and. In doing so uh, broadly across the organization and moving security and security primarily from an office of, you know, of no or a closed door to one that's open and very open to getting questions of, well, what do you think about this? I saw this and it makes me, uh, it makes me wonder, or should we be doing this? It's happening more and more in organizations that are, are opening, uh, truly opening the door and saying, please come ask us what you ask isn't going to be, you know, we're not going to be punitive about what you ask. We really want to hear it. Um, on the privacy side, similarly, there's, you know, there's moves toward combining folks and I'm going to play back on my higher ed uh, upbringing. I'm the parent of, I'm the son of uh, two, uh, of two, uh, of a professor turned Dean and a physician turned professor. So higher ed has been in my blood all my life. Um, but the notion of using a data use IRB, how you think about the institutional review board that any human subject research goes under. You take and look at, at, at the ethics of it, the legalities of it, the security of it, and the, and the, va- the, the societal and business value of it, and look at those together in one way. And then you make decisions about should we or shouldn't we before you ever collect a piece of information. Um, these are trends that I see increasing. But on the confluence, there's still the, you know, the specter of, of growth at all costs, 
and the data economy. Um, it is data is the new oil. I think it was the Economist had an article that was literally titled "Data is the New Oil." Yeah, um, and it, those are hard forces to work against, or or to, or to it's a very tempting thing to move toward, and it's hard to counteract that that gravity. Yeah, you know you, the old adage of "follow the dollars" if the dollars are going with the data, it's it's <laughs> it's a hard tie to fight against. Um, yep. To get organization, I think that, and and it's you know it's still one of the things, and I think I've lamented to you online. You know, we still see the governance aspect of that still being a challenge for so many organizations. Okay, let's assume they're going to collect data and, and for whatever reason they have to, and they've made some kind of business justification for doing so, they've placed enough value about it, um, but really not considering what they have and the term of that they're having it, um, you know, really the, the length of which they should have stuff, data disposition, and really how to build those access controls around it. And you know, more often than not, we see organizations that continue to have say high value people with high value data with inside their their email boxes that becomes their filing cabinet for so many things or have open network shares um you know how when you're looking at programs like that when you say gosh you know the, the proverbial horses are out of the barn the horses being data how do you start wrangling that back in you know where where would you give organizational guidance in that to say hey you guys kind of got to put some boundaries around this yeah, and and I have a ton of scars from various efforts <laughs> to try to do that. And I think anyone who thinks that it's completely doable should also try to implement a, a CMDB uh, because I think I put them on equal levels right. of mythic of mythicalness in terms of actually being able to truly do that kind of data governance. But that said, that's not an excuse for not trying to start. You know, trying to find ways to do small things. Um, uh, too often I see those programs start with a list of 900 different durations and data types um, and, you know, and expecting people to self to automatically classify those um, and then start to threaten that email goes away if they don't. You know, they shrink your mailbox, you have 30 days to classify it or get out and people revolt. And they yeah. just say, you know what? No. And you err on the then and you end up on the other side where needed data gets lost. Um, so back to everything I, everything I talk about comes back to finding the balance and finding the balance in this one is equally as important, but this one's equal is, is a lot tougher because it really demands that everybody be part of it. Um, not enabling and empowering them, but demanding because people need to, it's hard to do technology-based understanding of the value of a document of a value of a piece of data to a to an organization, there really is a human component to that to say, I had this on this day, I know I'll need this, I know it goes with this, or no, this is now no longer of use to me. Um, you know, but starting small and building that up uh, you know, with a few data types, a few classification types, and then as the organization matures, growing it along with it, uh, it is a very, very difficult prospect, but one that is becoming um, it also opens it also opens people's eyes as to what they're keeping that they don't need or what they you know when you say well why do you need this 15 year old document that sits here that contains um, you know that contains the notes that you took from a meeting in 1995. Yeah. And they look and say, no, I guess I really don't need that. I did you claim you finished your, your data purging. Why is it still there? Well, I didn't, I didn't know if I would need it again. And that's really the answer that on, on the proactive side, that's the part you have to fight against is, well, I didn't know if I would need it versus on the collection side is we don't know if we can monetize it yet. Yeah. <laughs> And that's funny. Yeah, it's funny. I dealt with uh, doing a records management program for a, 
it was a venture capital fund a number of years ago. And the same thing, it's like you go to the, the one of the founders of the fund, who's I think the CFO, and he's got data going back in his email to 1995. And we're like, this is data from funds that you guys exited out of a decade or over a decade ago. Why do you still have it? Well, I, I might need to reference it. And we kind of talked him off the ledge. And one of the things that I found, I'm curious if you found, is, is you know, kind of touched on in that business enablement. Said, so, well, let's give it a trial. Nothing's permanent. We can always roll back. But let's let's move things around so you restrict some of the things in your inbox and we'll organize it. And checking with him in a month later, he's like, this is amazing. I said, what? You, this is working? He goes, well, now I can find things. <laughs> it's like, okay, now I'm kind of understanding from the, from the user's perspective. It's like, well, mm-hmm. now we have a way to enable it. saying, now your data is better organized. So now you're more efficient. And therefore, you're making more money. Whatever the, the KPI we tied to it. But it, it was interesting to see it from the user's perspective as opposed to me just kind of being a little bit more dogmatic of thou shalt delete. <laughs> okay, there has to be something in it for the, for the user. Uh, for the person you're asking to take the action, or they're just, they're not going to form the habit that does it. There needs to be the positive reinforcement on the other end of it. Yeah. It's, it's the carrots often better than the stick I've I've found in security. Uh, But with that too, you know, one of the things that you touched on and, and, you know, not to vendor bash and and, and by no means am I putting, um, you know, Microsoft out there to be beat up, but it was things like teams. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. But it was funny. So you know, my prior organization, I helped with some internal projects of cutting over the entire on-prem environment to Office 365 in the cloud, removing things off of on-prem. It was a really highly mobile workforce doing incident response 24 hours a day. So there was this big cutover to SharePoint teams and the Office 365 stack. And I had to disable things like you know VPN shares, um, uh, Slack, other messaging components, and yeah, the users revolt. I said, but look, we have it all in this new product. It does everything that we want to do, and I reduce the attack surface area, the identity and access management's tied to one user, one account, and I can do it across multiple applications. Even security users like, I don't care, I hate this, <laughs> and it become it became a real uphill battle, and I kind of really felt that pain of balancing the user's perspective, even though I think they were become slightly hyperbolic at times um, versus me saying, I'm trying to manage a program to reduce costs from a CIO perspective and reduce risk from a CISO perspective. Um, you know, do you see that platforms like that are, you know, teams aside, but like there's, there's going to be more of that ability now, um, particularly as we push towards remote workforces and data privacy and security coming hopefully to light that there could be this kind of convergence that pushes us to, this thing where we manage an identity across multiple platforms on a single kind of under a single umbrella, or are we still looking at disparate kind of things, um, you know, across multiple platforms? Hello, our hope. question has arrived in the year 1999 yeah. when we were also debating best of breed versus sweet. And yeah. that time it was Lotus Notes and various other, um, you know, other other similar products. Um, this is not a new this is not a new argument. It's not a new question. Um, and but the challenges are exactly the same, especially now as we're in a point in time around uh, around fiscal you know, fiscal um, uh, moderation and and um, and being you know reasonable about what we spend and duplication of process. But at the same time, you also run the run the risk of you also have to think through what is the level of security and functionality that is good enough for your organization mm-hmm. to get through realizing that perfect uh, will come in best of breed, but it comes at a price or near perfect because perfect doesn't really exist. We're technologists. We're never quite satisfied. Um, So 
find this is it's it's an ongoing it's an ongoing discussion and one that won't go away anytime soon, especially as the sweet vendors continue to bundle the things that are we buy as products elsewhere as features within their system. They, they can take losses on them. They can make them no incremental charges. They can make them small up charges and get them 80% of the way. And in many cases, it is good enough for the organization, but it's a hard pill to swallow when you're taking a feature, when you're taking 20% of the features away that you know you are helping to protect the organization. Um, and so, you know, trying to do that in a way that still demonstrates, here's the positive value we're getting from this suite of opportunities um, by freeing up capital to do other projects or just making it so that we can balance budgets uh, in a very difficult financial time. Um, a lot with, you know, we're taking something away, we're, we're reducing our security posture. Um, similar to the data discussion, do you really need that item? Do you really need that extra feature? Um, unfortunately, what I do see it hap what I do see happening with that is it's going to stifle smaller companies from starting up. Uh, and, mm. and introducing new and interesting technologies unless their intention is being acquired by one of the suite vendors. Yeah, Microsoft's a hard beast to fight if, you, if you're trying to come up. Although we've seen them kind of absorb a couple of things. Actually, a couple of the task management things that I liked when it was actually independent before it got integrated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's definitely definitely a good point. But it's it's I, again it's it's so it's tough to be a user and an administrator and a owner of a program all at the same time because often you find yourself possibly pushing things you don't love. And, and finding a finding a product that does that suits the technical user and also suits the 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 your standard normal non-technical end user they're very different user bases and you know thinking about in the chat and and asynchronous communication space you know if i'd be very happy never to take my fingers off the keyboard if i i never want to touch a mouse when i'm using things mm -hmm. but your average user is probably just fine with that they don't need slash commands and they don't need, um, you know, <laughs> they don't need long strings of, of global search and replace in their text chat. In finding a product that meets all those needs and getting each of us to come off of our polar ends to find a happy medium, knowing we're doing right for the university, sorry, for the, uh, for the institution or for the, for the company is a, you know, that that's as much a part of, of the security role or of the IT role is, telling helping people understand the business value of making some of these technology decisions yeah it's 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 often me i find it's it's the challenge well, not the challenge but the i think the goal at least is trying to find you know what aligns with the business objectives and one of the things mm -hmm. when i go in and do security assessments i'll say how do you keep the lights on well we would the business is not the but we want to talk about the it i'm like it is 30 40 percent of your company i need to know what everybody does, why they're doing it, and then uncover those critical assets that probably need some some love and care because you've neglected it. Um, but it's really kind of finding what's that business objective, and then finding ways to support that. And, you know, in, in doing so, where you know, particularly in you know, again versus the user versus a, a kind of a CISO role, what are some of the KPIs and metrics that you look for when building this program to say, okay, these are the types of mission objectives we should consider. You know, not. One doesn't fit for every organization, but maybe some of the ones that, that you've learned that, hey, we really got to be looking at it like this from the business perspective, because this moves the, the ball up the field. Yeah. Number one in that is stickiness. How can you get people to continue to use it? Um, whether it's a phishing reporting button, something that's easy, something that they, they know and they trust and they want to use because they don't have to remember a lot of steps in how to use it. 
something that makes them want to continue to use it. And like we talked about before, for the um, uh, for the, uh, uh, the, the the reward at the end of it, they, they need to get something back out of it in order to become part of the process. Um, so stickiness is a huge one. How do you make something that makes people want to use it? Um, user experience similarly, and you know, perhaps on another day we can talk about the UX problem that is that that security, both security and privacy, have in the technology that we present to users about how to be secure. Um, I think this is a big problem, and the more we solve that problem, the more we get to to better stickiness of security uh, of security in the every person realm. Um, the other is, uh, actually, it's interesting when we talk about metrics and KPI, because the more I speak with boards, the more I speak with uh, CEOs and executives, the more I've gotten away from metrics and more I've moved to narratives, mm. narratives about business impact. Um, and, and perhaps the underlying tone of this is shifting the KPIs to be business-enabled KPIs. The so what at the end of the discussion, right. well, we, we blocked 538,000 uh, vulnerable. Uh, 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 brute force attack attempts today. Um, and then answering, so what? And so what does that mean? Uh, or if we don't patch these things, uh, we're gonna have 93 vulnerabilities that still remain and they're all critical. So what? Does that mean if the system, if this system goes down, what does that mean I can't sell? Does it mean we can't take orders? Does it mean that the HR system is offline? And then taking it one step further and saying, what does that mean for the business? So what? Uh, is a large part of every metric and discussion, but it feeds into the narrative that you tell the story about the state of security in the organization, not just a pile of numbers. Yeah, humans definitely are more uh, storytelling creatures, and that mm -hmm. that tends to resonate. Um, and, and, and with that, I mean, do you have any good stories or successes that you can, you know, anonymize talk about it? something that you say you're particularly proud of, but when your program say, gosh, you know, we put this in and we saw progress and this happened, we stopped this, or th this was the outcome, kind of, so to speak. Yeah, and this is going to tune to the softer side of security, the less technical and more of the awareness. Um, one of the other evolutions of security has come out of the technology realm and moved more toward bringing everybody into security and helping them understand what their role is in it. And that, you know, the, 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 the biggest challenge we have is people at their keyboards clicking on things and and opening things and it keeps both of us well employed <laughs> but um Fortunately, but, yes. <laughs> but at the same time you know this the, i think the greatest success i've had is developing awareness and communication programs that like i said earlier bring those people into the fray of security and get them asking questions about about whether or not this is secure translating it into their home life you know using technology in this way at home makes them more more uh, a greater chance that they will come and do that same better behavior at work rather than saying we require you to do this so bringing my my biggest success in all this and my biggest surprise in all this has been making security accessible to all and continually informing uh, them through it through good programs and using creative mechanisms to stay in touch whether it's uh, emails that are not formal that are not, they're just, hey, we saw this, or reaching out to somebody to say, hey, we noticed this in this in, in this area, you may wanna take this action um, to, to protect yourself or to protect your family. Or when there's something that happens that they see in the news, helping to bring it down to a human level versus a uh, fear, uncertainty and doubt story that may have been there for clicks uh, on the news site. Um, 
and, and helping to translate it into what it means for them and their and their family and the work uh, and get them asking questions and just engaging people on that level uh, has been has been my greatest success over the years. Yeah, I, I can I can parallel a lot of that where, you know, in some of the gigs where I've done security assessment training and acted at a virtual CISO at the same organization and constantly kind of be in and out of the offices or, or talk with people every couple months and people coming up to me excitedly saying, oh, I caught this or I saw this or hey, I have a yeah. question about at home, should I set the, you know, it's just like there, there's almost um, approachability that we try to build around the culture of it where, you know, I think so much of it, what I, you know, what I try to tell, you know, a lot of organizations is one of your best lines of defense is a, is a welcome help desk where people don't feel like uh, every time I go to the help desk, they, they're either stupid, they're mean to me, or there's just some kind of disparate attitude where they don't want to report things that could have easily stopped something from spreading um, and bu- building a welcome culture. And it's, it's, it is a people problem at the end. Absolutely. And we can't downplay the, 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 the importance of something like EQ, emotional, emotional quantities around, around how security, around people that are in security. We have needs for really heavy technical work. That ne- never will go away. But as well, we have equal and growing needs for people who can both be empathetic and can share and can communicate in terms of the business or the rest of the organization around them in order to enable the people doing the technology to get all the things they need to do it right. Yeah. And one of the things that I want to talk about too, is, you know, we, we certainly got to meet on Slack channels and, and kept in touch there. You know, what kind of inspired you to be involved with the community and kind of give back and, and be, be a part of what we call cybersecurity family. <laughs> um, it, it actually goes back very early in my career um, well, I guess I'll go before that. It all, it all goes back to our parents, right? Uh, my parents both being in higher ed, my mother was an advisor uh, for the major that she, that she was part of for the, and she was the chair of that department and spent a lot of time mentoring students that were part of her department and outside because she generally wanted them to succeed. And watching that growing up, uh, was really eye-opening and seeing how people could succeed over time. And we kept in touch with those students over the years and I got to know them as well and, and watching their careers progress, not because, uh, not because of their own, just because of their own um, abilities, but because of the advice that they were able to take from people around them, the mentoring that they got, the people they reached out to. Um, and it, it really brought a very positive response to my mother and to my father as well, when they were able to help people continue their, to take what they knew and help them grow themselves, both as people, as leaders, as, as parts of organizations. Uh, and so I bring that same thing. Um, and then it, I've also had some very powerful mentors uh, in my career, uh, people who have been very instrumental in helping me get past hurdles and get around items and show me the power of being vulnerable to each other, uh, not in the technology vulnerable part of way, but, but opening up and saying, hey, I need help with this. Uh, and you get a much more genuine and, 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 and helpful response when you open up a little bit more and say, we need this. And then similarly on the, on the industry side, uh, early on in my career, it was in fields in which there was heavy competition amongst the players in the, uh, uh, in the, uh, at the business level. But at the security level, we were always about sharing. 
Uh, this was in the days when we were, you know, it was early days for information sharing. The ISACs weren't even in place, so they were just getting started. And you saw the value in sharing information among incident response teams, among security professionals of things we saw in order to make each other better, in order to in order to fight against a common a common good or fight for a common good. And that really resonated in the same way. And so combining those two things, um, I really take a lot of a, a lot of pleasure in contributing the things I've learned. I want to help if I can help people not step in the same holes I did, um, find new holes and then learn from them as well. Uh, it really helps all of us be better at doing security and doing privacy and doing the things that we do. Um, and then encourages them equally to contribute further. And there's a there's an there's a magnification factor that goes along with that kind of uh, you know, that kind of spreading of a message of, uh, of of sharing. Yeah, and again, a lot of you and I have eerily similar parallels on a lot of things when, it, when we've talked about this uh, you know offline about you know parents that were involved very heavily in mentorship, and my parents were teachers too, and uh, same thing where I saw you know their intern everything from their business when they own businesses to interns that. I we still I think they still keep in touch with two students that they had that went on to do you know great things and being publishing and different things and still have it's really cool to see that progression. And I think that's one of the things that I've, I've really enjoyed seeing and really appreciated people with me that hey just give somebody a little bit of a a nudge in the right direction and see where they go and it's incredibly rewarding. But I also found it's also incredibly it can be you know. Look, I'm, I'm altruistic, but I'm also capitalistic at times where I say this is a really great way to market and at least what I've found and what I try to recommend and tell people is, look, if you want to, to get out there in this industry um, and you want to, you don't have to make a name for yourself, but if you want to get ahead, so to speak, give to get, you know, do something, put yourself out there, find something that you can blog about. Everybody has their perspective that has value. Um, and by giving, you're probably going to get a lot more in return in a lot of different ways. Right, both both tangibly and uh, and intangibly. Uh, when I was setting up my uh, when I was starting my uh, security consultancy, uh, one of the things when I was looking at the business model was how much time do I want to work and how much time do I want to share, uh, and it was a surprisingly large amount of time that I found myself needing to wanting to give to that kind of mentoring and sharing, um, and I wouldn't change a thing in retrospect. Yeah, it's it's incredibly rewarding. And you did start something, I don't think it's live yet, but with MentorCore. Can you kind of speak a little bit about that, of what, what the idea, what the kind of mission statement is behind that and, and what exactly it is? Yeah, so MentorCore, is a, it's, it's in a soft launch. So it's available, but we're, 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 we're getting it ramped up. Um, a partner of mine, friend of mine, longtime friend of mine, uh, Lisa Beth Lentini-Walker and I have been, uh, we're both committed to mentoring. She has been in the compliance and ethics on the legal side uh, and I on the security and privacy side, and about a year, a little over a year ago, uh, she had me out to speak at a conference, a uh, compliance and ethics conference, and we came to realize how close these two worlds are, and at the same time, how insulated many of us are from speaking with other people in our field um, or being able to share and what we go through as, as security risk and privacy and ethics and compliance professionals is very different from that of other, uh, from that of other fields. And we have different challenges. It's a very, it's a very lonely role at times. Um, and trying to bring people like that together to be able to share with each other and then to be able to find the mentors that they need 
uh, or that they want or that best suit them to be able to help them grow themselves and their careers. Uh, I don't think a conversation among two or three security professionals can happen without it leading to uh, how do you go about finding mentors? Uh, how do I break into the field? How do I get past some of these job descriptions, which is claimed to be entry level, but are looking for, uh, you know, for a 20 year veteran? Um, you know, some of these things that are very difficult, it's a tough field. Uh, and, and trying to bridge more people to be able to speak with each other, to be able to connect with each other on that level, and to be able to share information about how they're doing from leadership, from growth, personal growth, business growth, uh, is really the mission of what we're trying to accomplish. It's a community. Uh, we, have a, we have a message board, a, um, uh, like a old BB, uh, not BBS, a, um, a forums board where people can share articles and reply back. We have, um, we have talks that are happening on a regular basis, some that are public uh, and some that are members only. Um, and uh, we're really looking forward and excited by the idea of being able to bring people together. You just dated yourself by saying BBSs, by the way, Dan. I just want to point that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's funny. It's like, it look like it's, you know, I look at Slack and some of the channels that we're on now is, is it's that same kind of community, um, you know, wanting to be online. And I think a lot of security folks, you know, kind of go back to our early discussions. Is we've all kind of been remote at times. And so many of us have, you know, get to know each other over years of being online and communicating, you know, the, the guys that were freak phoning and, and calling into calls with each other um, on the 2600 crowd to folks out here in Denver that were, you know, early BBS guys, you know, they say, look, we, we didn't meet any of these people until we went to Black Hat or something like that, or, you know, and it took years. Uh, but you really have to build that community. Um, and it's so, I think it's one of the things that's most attractive to me about security is that there is that community. Been in IT, and I always felt it was very insular and very one-way looking. But I think, you know, with security constantly changing, you really do need to depend on other people because you can't know it all. Absolutely. And I think it also transcends the levels in the organization, levels of, uh, levels of, um, uh, of maturity is not the right word, levels of, of, of uh, advancement. And, you know, are you, are you new to the field? Are you in the middle of your career? Are you in leadership roles, are you a sole, are you an individual contributor, sole practitioner? Um, there's great amount of sharing that happens through all of those strata. Uh, and I think that helps us all make, become better and figure out what it is that moves us about doing security uh, and stay in the areas that does that to keep us interested. Because burnout, with the, you know, with the rates of burnout and the levels of stress that we have uh, in this field, which agreed are, are in other fields as well. But yeah, we have this, you have to, if, as long as it's, if it stays interesting, you have a better chance of overcoming those and, uh, and being able to share and commiserate with other people in the same situation is equally as valuable to, uh, to getting over the hump. Yeah. And you touched on something. This is why I, I wish I've, I could, should have you on more regularly. You naturally go down my uh, my list of questions that I was going to ask you. <laughs> Wait, talk, I'm just reading from the list you gave Oh, me. yeah, that's right. <laughs> I re, which I refuse to, but you somehow read my mind, so you must have hacked my mind. Uh, but burnout, you know, it's something that we talk about that, and it's one of the things that, I, you know, I've been contemplating for a while talking about, you know, the mental health aspects. It goes into physical health, but health in general when it comes to folks in this, this industry. We have a high rate of burnout. I mean, I, I know I've burnt out a lot of people. I've been burnt out doing it. Um, talk to others that have been, and people don't reach out for help when it comes to that. That's where they kind of withdraw. And there's problems with, with alcohol abuse, drug abuse, you know, you name it because people don't have those coping skills. And some of these folks don't have the ne necessary tools to, to cope. But you know, that all being said, do you 
agree with that? Do you see that being an issue? And, you know, where are some of the, you know, kind of look at the A20 rule, what, what are some of the things people could do maybe in the short term to alleviate some of that long-term stress? Yeah. So even before February, so I'll give you two answers again. Everything yeah. comes with two, answers. two answers. Before February, this was a huge problem. It was, this is not new. And then after February, it became an even bigger problem as you start to layer on uh, the stress of changing your workplace, as you start to lay on the stress of people around you falling ill or you or your family falling ill uh, from a virus that you don't have control over and, and still trying to work. And then you layer on some of the social, uh, some of the social challenges that we're seeing uh, just now, you know, at the time we're recording this, yeah. there's, we're in the middle of that. This is an immense amount of pressure to layer onto a job that's always been quite stressful. Um, yes, it is a problem. It has been a problem. It will continue to be a problem. Um, burnout, I've had periods myself where you just go, I, I don't know that I want to be doing this anymore. And you have to ask for help and you have to talk to people um, because we don't have the coping mechanisms as a, as a, as a, as an industry, but also as a culture in the US, I don't think we have a good mindset of, I need help. We don't have that, 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 that skill isn't built into us. It's pull up your bootstraps and go make it happen. Um, but I think we're to a point in time and in the security industry, we need that help. We need to ask how to go through these things and do so in a little more public way. I've been trying to encourage more CISOs to have this conversation with each other, even before we came into COVID, uh, just to talk about the, the burnout discussion. Because similar to the mentoring discussion, you can't get three security practitioners together um, without having a discussion about, hey, man, I'm really lagging in this and I'm just not feeling motivated. Um, how'd you get through it? Uh, so having a little bit broader discussion around that has been um, something I've been trying to champion over the past probably year, year and a half, as we've seen more people uh, either leaving the field or uh, or falling prey to some of the vices that go along with self-medication um, and trying to cope in, a, in what become unproductive ways. Yeah, it's, uh, and look, I, I look at it too from, you know, folks in leadership positions, there's in particular, I would say like you know, using consulting, and, and this happens in internal groups too, but this idea of uh, you know, whatever the metrics are that they're achieving. And it's always like, well, if you hit 100%, 100% can you do 110? Like if you're right. 100% billable, can you do a little bit more? Can you do a little bit more? And we'll give you more money. And there's obviously diminishing returns. And, and one of the things I've seen that, you know, when we kind of talk about generational changes, but I've definitely seen it with some of the, you know, the millennial group where they're just like, there's no amount of money you can give me. I've seen my, my older brother, my parents, other people burn out. I don't want to do that. Like there's, I need time off and asking for that and organizations giving people that time to reset. I'd rather have somebody go away for a week, completely off the grid and come back at a hundred percent than that they come back 50% because they were checking their email the entire time, but didn't respond to anything. It's kind of becomes useless. So for me, it's, again, it's altruistic, but it can also be, um, you know, capitalistic. They don't have to be mutually exclusive <laughs> ideas, you know? Oh, without question. I, I worked for a, uh, for one of the, one of the companies I worked for was based in, uh, was based in Europe. And on one of my travels there, I was lamenting, uh, I was young in my career at the time. I was in my first management role. Uh, and I was lamenting to one of the one of the locals there uh, about having to take a vacation. I needed to take a vacation. I was being forced to take a vacation. Um, and I said, you know, I can't do this. This stuff's not going to, you know, I, I, how is it going to happen without me? And he stopped me and said, Dan, you're not that important. 
The company has been around long before you. It will be here long after you. Surely you don't think that the entire company will crumble if you take two weeks, two weeks away and don't connect and don't check in on things. Um, and you'll come back refreshed. And you know what? He was absolutely right. Um, and you know, we are not that important. We have people, we surround ourselves with people that can support us. Um, we're actually more of a detriment by being a single point of failure or by running mm -hmm. processes through ourselves and not taking the time to recharge. We need that. There's a reason we sleep at night or we're supposed to sleep at night. We need to do that on a more meta basis, on a regular basis, clear our heads, find mindfulness, um, uh, meditate. There's a whole bunch of things you can do in the short term in a and, and, in the, and in the long term to make yourself more productive. And yes, it does take your time away from cranking at code or from you know, tracking down a, a bad actor, uh, or from you know, preaching, the, the security, uh, preaching the security mantras uh, in awareness. But all of those things that you do for yourself will help you make you more productive at a macro level. You need to look at the long term rather than just what's happening today. Yeah, I think people become, you know, it's the force of the trees metaphor. So many people become like so folks, oh, I got to get this done, got to get this done. It's like, really? I mean, what and what if it doesn't? What's the big deal if this waves mm -hmm. the day? And it's, there's a little bit of time arbitrage. Not every hour of the day is built the same. I'm not as good as I am at 8 p.m. as I am at 8 a.m., so I shouldn't expect the same outcome. Um, Absolutely. And so it's just setting those boundaries. You start making some more careful, more efficient and effective decisions. Say, if I'm only going to work eight hours today, what am I going to work on? And what has the biggest impact as opposed to just being busy? And I think that's one of the things I see in security is there's a lot of busy work, tons of busy work. I question sometimes how, how effective a lot of the work is. Sure. Well, it's also uh, it's also fighting against the loudest and most recent problem. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you're a G if you're a David Allen GTD guy, yeah. but um, <clears throat> that's one of his uh, getting things done. But one of his um, one of his biggest uh, inhibitors is you people inherently respond to the thing that is the loudest and happened the most recently. And it's, you know, it's equivalent of squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. Yeah. And we're never staying focused. We're never taking time to think bigger. Um, and, and we're not being as effective. So we're really, really busy, but we're not getting things done. Yeah. It's not useful busy. It, and it comes, I, I, I think every, you know, what, what doesn't get uh, measured doesn't get managed. And you have to kind of measure those outputs a little bit say, am I doing something that really has an impact? You know, what, what is that? You know, goal setting. And is that something that you do on a regular basis where, hey, you, you kind of help prioritize your day and you set goals. I mean, how do you, you know, how do you sift through, you know, how does Dan Ayala sift through the noise? <laughs> um, I'm a, I'm a strategic thinker. I tend to, I actually have a bit more trouble bringing myself down into the, into the, the execution portions mm. of it. I spent, <laughs> I spent a little too much time, uh, at the, at the 20,000 foot view, um, so, you know, looking at what does this get us in the long run? That's a big motivator. Like it could be great for today, but does this help us achieve our, our strategic outcome? You look, at, uh, you look at higher ed and you talk about the mission. Does this help us achieve our strategic objectives and the mission? And if not, then it's not something you do. Um, it, it's, when you're not chasing after revenue, it puts a little bit different perspective into making some of those decisions and then being able to apply those same concepts back when you are looking at revenue uh, opportunities is really enlightening. 
uh, or having an idea of, of what the end game is and what you're trying to what you're trying most to support. What is the most important thing to be supporting? And asking yourself with every task you're about to take on, does this materially help us achieve that most important strategic outcome? Yeah. Well, Dan, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Where can folks find you on the interwebs? I am on uh, Twitter at Budake, B-U-D-D-H-A-K-E. I have a personal blog, DanielAyala.com. MentorCore, MentorCore.biz, B-I-Z. And then Socratics, S-E-C-R-A-T-I-C.com is my virtual CISO, virtual privacy officer business. Awesome. I will be sure to put those all in the show notes as well as our, our recent talk on Hang a Shingle, how to start a business we just did. at, at the That was a lot of fun. That was great. Yeah. And a lot, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback on that. I posted that on a couple other Slack channels where people are like, I, this is exactly what I needed right now. So I think our timing was great on that. I'll be sure to put that yeah. in the show notes. And it's well. a great time. That's a yeah. great, going back to the, going back to the burnout question, a great way to be able to stay in the field and get a new perspective and it's a little, it's a little, you know, a little clenching as you make the step off of the, yeah. uh, <laughs> off of the edge, but is to start your own, start your own security business. You get to decide what you want to do. Now you have to listen, watch the talk and hear the, re- think through the reasons why you're doing it and do them for the right reasons. But it's a great way to stay in the field, but have a different perspective and perhaps some new, uh, some new energy to doing it. Awesome. I love it. I, again, I'll be sure to put all that in the on the show notes of the page. And uh, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today, Dan. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Doug. Really appreciate it. Have a great day. I'll talk soon. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.